Tonight's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. The word of the Lord. about you, but I'm not really crazy about the word glory. I certainly wouldn't use it three versions of it six times in seven sentences in a climactic moment of a gospel that I was writing. Glory, glorify, glorified, glorify thy, glorify thou, glorify thee, glorify me. Majesty, splendor, glory. I don't know how to deal with those words. They seem like the names for dishwashing liquids. They seem like words you'd find in travel brochures and rest areas where you're on your way to the Rocky Mountains. I mean, maybe it's just an old word, glory. And it used to be a great word. But it feels empty to me. Or worse, somehow, it feels suspicious. Like, what kind of God cares so much for her own or his own glory? Zeus, maybe Aphrodite, maybe some God with long blonde hair or some God with muscles. Some God that demands constant homage. It seems like the kind of God that would care so much about his glory is the kind of God that would get outraged if he felt slighted. Like he'd overhear someone say he's really not that cute or smart or great. And then he would make it rain for like 40 days. Or keep the wind blowing in a certain direction for 40 years and sailors would have to make sacrifices to appease him and placate him. It seems like that's the kind of God that cares about glory. Or like Snow White's evil stepmother or aunt or 
whoever the queen in Snow White is, who goes to the mirror every day to make certain that she's still the fairest of them all. I mean, I can sort of imagine the kind of anxiety that might drive something like that, but could you trust a God who cared about that? A God who was motivated by that? I mean, look what happens to Snow White when she threatens the queen's glory. Could a God like that possibly help us, care for us, love us? A God that is obsessed with being worshipped, obsessed with glory, obsessed, obsessed with his beauty, his muscles, his greatness? So yeah, the text for today has glory all over it, practically every other word. Jesus praying to be glorified. Glorify thee, glorify me. It's a prayer for glory. It felt like it was a little bit hard to get into that. It bugged me. I don't really like Zeus. So I had to read John's whole book like three times and realize that glory in the Gospel of John isn't quite what you might usually think of glory. In fact, it's so different that it might as well be a different word. John says we've seen God's glory and the word become flesh. That's kind of a crazy thing to say. It's sort of the opposite direction that you'd expect anyone to say about God's glory. It goes the opposite direction. The glory isn't the transformation of mortal flesh into divine majesty, but the opposite. It's in the majesty becoming flesh. It's in the big thing getting smaller. The big divine, I don't know, unlimited, unknowable God getting human, limited, flesh, mortal. The same thing that seems out there, far away and above it all, getting the same as us all. Getting blood and bones and veins and skin and a tongue and teeth. That's wild. That's the glory of God in the Gospel of John. We have seen God's glory in the word become flesh. No divine ichor, no sweet ambrosia, no thunderbolts in this story. It's weird and interesting. And when Jesus says to God, glorify me, he means, actually, for God to lift him up to be crucified. In the Gospel of John, God's glory is the cross. That's very strange. A crucifixion was a long, drawn-out process of public humiliation. Each step systematically deprived the one being crucified of honor and power. I don't think that's the sort of glory that the queen in Snow White is after. It's not Zeus on the highest throne with a bucket full of thunderbolts, divine ichor flowing through his veins, feasting on sweet ambrosia. The glory of God in the Gospel of John doesn't shine, it bleeds. Glory, how we usually think about it, is about being distinct. It's about being better than. It's about being separated out from the ordinary herd for something extraordinary. But God's glory goes in the precise opposite direction. The glory that Jesus prays for is that they may be one as I and the Father are one. They are in each other. And he prays that we might be in him and he in us 
And it's all very intimate sounding. It's certainly about union, not separation. The glory is in what unites us, not what separates us out. It's in what brings us together. It's God with us thoroughly. In mortality, skin, blood, suffering, death. It seems like a strange and beautiful kind of glory to me. We're weird beings. I think we want glory, like the our world, usual sort of glory, the being the greatest, shiniest sort of glory. We want glory because we want love, I think. We want everyone to love us. We want to be recognized, known, honored, and we seem to believe that that way to get this is to shine. And then it all becomes this sort of system that works according to merit. You get glory by being better than other people. The glory goes to the winner. So it's like we're anxiously checking the queen's magic mirror every other minute, subtly or unconsciously even. It may be in our genes. It may be survival of the fittest. We measure ourselves over against each other all the time, like crazy. And that makes us judge people like crazy. Like you have to believe all these people are worse than you for some reason. Whatever reason you can find something, anything, it makes us ungracious and unloving. But didn't we want glory because we wanted love? The system is like the opposite of grace, and it doesn't work. It doesn't bring love into the world. But we seem to be pretty attached to the system or confined by it, like we don't know how else to work. Our way of getting glory ends up being alienating and severing. I think God shows us a different way, a completely different kind of glory. It's the opposite of alienation and separation, something completely outside of that anxious, striving glory system. It's grace. It's mercy. And I think it has to do with knowing how much we need, need each other, need love, and how much we are connected in relationship with it all, and not above it all ever. I think the glory of God might be sort of offensive to us, the word become flesh, weakish. The great immortal God becomes like any other needy human being, needed food and water and people. We're needy at our core in a very big way. And I'm not sure we like that so much. It's scary. We are not self-sufficient. And maybe this makes us feel inadequate or something. We don't love our need or anybody else's need, really. When we call people needy, we usually don't mean it as a compliment. I think we want relationship, we want love, but we just can't stand our own need. We'd rather have this glory system where we believe we have merit over against other people, where you can at least work your way up to something. Like we move ourselves to the world by our own devices, our own merit, rather than rest in grace some utterly, profoundly, all-inclusive place. It's like we look at the world like it was made up of unrelated autonomous beings, separate, independent, in competition. Not one 
at all. Not in one another, not in God, whatever that means. We believe in our separation, that we are on our own. Of course, that's a lie. Autonomy is a complete fabrication. You can't move through the world autonomously. You breathe, someone else feels it on their cheek. You digest your food, you release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. A butterfly flapping its wings in Japan may cause a hurricane in Florida. Everything directly or indirectly affects everything else. It's like science. We don't really have a choice about it. We need all around, all the time, every minute of our lives, without all the things outside of yourself holding you up, sustaining you right now, you vaporize. You don't exist. You die. Your life is absolutely dependent on gravity and air and food and water and each other and God, I believe. But it seems like we just can't stand to live there, recognizing our need and our utter connectedness. In John, that sort of made-up stance of alienated autonomy, the lie of our unconnectedness is called the world. And the writer of John has a huge polemic against it. He says it's anti-grace and anti-Christ. It's not that the world is dirty or bad or immoral or human. It's that it makes this fake place to stand, this place of alienated autonomy. We are made out of relationship. We're made for relationship. But we sometimes live like what matters is our individual self, gaining merit over others. It's crazy and it's delusional. And it doesn't turn out very well. It creates an anxious, intolerant, sometimes violent, destructive world. In some way, we fail as lovers all the time. We want communion, we want union, I think. But somehow our way of getting glory ends up being alienating, severing, excommunicating, not love. We want it, but we do so much that takes us in the opposite direction. We forget to believe in the glory of God and live there. We forget and think that you have to play the glory game and believe in the glory game, even if you're not that good at it, because it's the game of the world. We are not going to humiliate ourselves by needing, by needing love. We aren't very often fools for love. But God doesn't act like we do. God is so much a fool for love so thoroughly chooses to be with us, chooses to give up power and honor, chooses to need us, goes to humiliating lengths in pursuit of us, of love, dies on the cross for the sake of union. God's glory undoes the alienation and separation that our glory system turns out. It releases us to communion. It releases us to love one another. May we live there, and may we feel once in a while the freedom to be fools for love.